wounded, but not broken. With host Patrick Scroggins. As a U.S. Army attack helicopter pilot deployed in Iraq, Patrick faced a devastating crash, which resulted in him dying, losing a leg, and a slew of broken bones. Patrick's story of rehabilitation has helped others to overcome their own obstacles. Each week, Patrick recounts stories of inspiration and interviews guests who have overcome remarkable obstacles. This is Wounded But Not Broken with your host, Patrick Scroggins. Welcome to Wounded But Not Broken here on yet another Monday night. I hope everybody's weekend was good, uh, especially leading up to, to Christmas. I hope the families are getting together and, uh, you know, starting to get back to some sort of normalcy in this country uh, that we've kind of got away from us for the last couple of years. And, and you know, I, I hope that doesn't leave and I hope we get it back. Tonight I have a very special guest on the line with me, and uh, I'm just, I am just—I want to read a quick bio for him. and He deserves a, uh, a better introduction than I can give him. But uh, his, his General Borling is on the line with me tonight. He was a fighter pilot during the Vietnam War. He was uh, shot down by ground fire. He was seriously injured in the crash. Uh, at, the, at the time, Captain Borling still attempted to commandeer a Vietnamese supply truck for his escape. He was able to gain control of the supply truck, but the truck was carrying Viet- Vietnamese regulars. General Borling was soon overpowered by the soldiers and would spend the next six and a half years as a prisoner of war in the Hanoi Hilton. General Borling was released on February 12, 1973. Upon his return to the country uh, at the time, Captain Borling, now General Retired Borling, was an F-15 Eagle fighter pilot and commander of the Hat in the Ring Squadron. He was an Air Division commander at Hanoi Air Force Base and the head of operations of the Strategic Air Command in Omaha. In that position, he directed in support of hostilities in the, in the Gulf War and Panama and was charged with the execution responsibilities for the nation's nuclear war plan. At the Pentagon, he led Checkmate, a highly classified warfighting think tank that was directed, or excuse me, director of the Air Force operational requirements helping initiate a new family of guided weapons. General Boring Borling has a very extensive military career, a, a very extensive service to this country, and I hope everybody pays attention because I think we can all learn something tonight from, from his stories. General Borling, welcome to the show. show. Well, well, thanks very much, Patrick. I'm glad to be with you, and, and I was about ready to sit up and plead not guilty when you said General Boring. I've been, uh, I've been introduced, by the way, that way. Uh, they, in fact, it's, now let's welcome the latest dope from the Air Force uh, and get the latest dope from the Air Force, uh, General Boring. So I pleaded not guilty on both counts, although I'm sure there's uh, many a dinner party uh, and, uh, and many a encounter where people come away and say, God, is he dull. So I'll try not to be dull tonight with you guys, all right? Well, I just wanted to make sure you were paying attention. So that was that was my little catch to make hey, sure you were listening. So I, 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 I'm, I'm old and slow, but I'm paying attention, all right? And, there we go. Uh, there we go. <laughs> and, uh, and you recounted uh, the military stuff nicely. Thank you very much. But uh, uh, I think it's always important what you're going to do tomorrow and what we did after the military and continue to do, just like you're doing. I mean, think of all the people that you've inspired with your story. 
and the motivation that you can you can provide uh, by example, because in the end, uh, leadership's all about uh, a process of example and persuasion, and nothing does that better than uh, uh, guys who've thrown themselves on the barbed wire a time or two and felt those feet on their back. It, it, it's lonely when you throw yourself on the barbed wire and you don't feel any feet on your back, but that's another story for another time. You uh, you represent a great example, and uh, and uh, so pleased to be with you tonight. Well, man, I, I really appreciate it, and you know your story is very intriguing to me, especially since we in, we both enjoy this love for aviation, and and I just I want to start out uh, by just asking, you know, what when did you find your love for aviation? How did you? you know, determine, get on that track and, and, uh, and accomplish the things that you accomplished. You have, you've flown a, a giant variety of aircraft. I mean, to me, the two most intriguing would be the SR-71 and the U-2. But, uh, so, you know, how did you, how did you, how'd you figure out that you're calling in life? Well, the flying part, uh, is always kind of the sex appeal, if you will, that people gravitate to and want to know about. Uh, but the greater notion of service and the greater notion of uh, having a life of meaning, I, I think, was uh, and is motivating. You know, Richard Nixon was the president who said no one's truly whole unless they're committed outside of self. And uh, starting at a pretty early age, uh, even back in high school on the south side of Chicago, I had this notion that I wanted to break out and be different than uh, the other guys and gals that I was growing up with, uh, uh, not to be better, uh, but to try to, and, and, you know, there was naked ambition, certainly, at the start, uh, uh, but that migrated over time to where it became more important to try to get something done than to, than to be somebody. Uh, but you ask about those motivating days. I had an uncle who was a World War II guy, uh, B-24, shot down on their seventh mission, and only the four officers got out of the airplane. Uh, everyone else was killed. They were all captured and were POWs and survived a uh, German prison camp and got out after the war, and uh, the bombardier made a ring which I wear now uh, out of Vitalium. It was a dental metal that was used in making bridges back then. And I'm talking about bridges for the mouth, not bridges for the roads. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a contrary thought these days and age. But uh, uh, And so Dick talked to me about it, and, and I got enamored of the new Air Force Academy, and I'd been going to civilian schools and trying to, uh, qualify for the academy, and, and it happened that I was able to enter with the first full class that spent four years at the site. And in that summer, to finally get to your question about what motivated me, uh, you know, I went to the academy because I thought it was new, I thought it was interesting, I thought they, for a small school, had a great football team, and I was a football player, and uh, I thought that uh, the uniforms were cool. I thought a lot of girls would be attracted to it. You know, all these important reasons for going to a military academy. But they put us in the backseat of a T-33, a T-Bird. It's a training airplane, much like the F-80 from Korean days. And, in fact, I flew with a Korean guy when they took us up on an orientation flight. 
and I was the third guy that day. The other two had not fared well. They'd been sick in the cockpit, and they'd been uh, not particularly enamored of the experience. Uh, but I got up, and, uh, and you know, he said, God, I hope you do better. I said, well, God, I hope I do too. And, and it, it was magic. He let me have the airplane right after liftoff. And I'd only been in an airplane three times in my life. Once back and forth to West Point as a senior in high school, they sent six of us from the city of Chicago to have a West Point experience. I came away much uh, enamored of West Point and thought I wanted to go there until the Air Force uh, lured me. And then when I flew out to the academy to enter in and then during that first summer, that strenuous summer, or day of respite, if you will, was to go up. And so here I am now, three times in an airplane. Now I'm flying with a Korean fighter pilot, and we're up doing acrobatics and loops and rolls. And, uh, and you say, we well, he's letting me do it all. And even though I tried to crash us into the gym at the academy, which was about 20 minutes south, or about 10 minutes south of Lowry Field, where we flew from in Denver, uh, it, it turned into, I failed to pull out on a split S maneuver where you roll to your back and pull it through, and you're supposed to pull it through like a loop, and I was just, you know, kind of enamored, looking at the ground, stuff kind of fixing it, <laughs> and he said, are you going to pull this SOB out, or are we going to be in the gym in three seconds or four seconds, so I gave it a great yank, and we got we, we were saved. And uh, anyway, came back in and pitched out and landed. And I was with him on the controls all the way through it. And when I got out of the airplane, I mean, and I still get the operatic chill. I said, you know, I got to do this. I said, I've got to be a fighter pilot. And uh, so I put all my energies, both at the academy and certainly at pilot training to, to that end and graduated number one in my class at the, in pilot training, certainly not at the academy, but uh uh, I was kind of a middle, middle, middle grader there, but uh, really turned two in pilot training and uh, got fighters and flew fighters for many years. And then, as you alluded, ended up going to Strategic Air Command in the bomber, tanker, and recce business, and uh, got into the operational side of the house there and was able to do things there with a multitude of airplanes that many don't get the chance to fly or or pilot. I was not operational as a general officer, but I had the kind of the run of the fleet, and I made sure that I uh, uh, had adequate experience in, in all the jets that were under my domain as the head of operations. Right. Wow, that's that's such an impressive story. And I just got to back up. Did, did I hear you correctly that you, your personal conversation with uh, President Nixon? Is that right? Hey, it wasn't. You know, I've, <clears throat> excuse me, I've talked to the president. Uh, he was the guy who had that big party after the Vietnam War at uh, at the White House. In fact, the biggest party they've ever had. And uh, later, I worked at the White House, uh, uh, and Rex Scouten was still the chief usher there. And Rex and I were talking one day, and we were overlooking something when I'm working at the White House. And he said, you know that party with the POWs here? And it was a hell of a party. They opened up the White House totally. Uh, the living quarters, everything. We had full run of the place. And the party was actually out in a big tent uh, out on the on the South Lawn. 
and you know, it was Bob Hope emceeing and Sammy Davis Jr. and and uh, John Wayne and Phyllis Diller and the, you know the whole crew that Bob Hope would haul around with him. Uh, and the president came, and not only did he visit every table personally, but uh, they brought us all up on stage and we got to talk with them. And then afterwards, he's just you know all the muckities have gone away. It's just us guys uh, and our wives or girlfriends, case may be, and uh, the president wandering around and uh, doing stuff and talking. And I remember somewhere around 10.30 or so, quarter to 11, the president, right after Barry, I don't know what Barry's last name was, did a handstand on the Steinway Eagle Grand. Uh, so it, it was turning into one of those military kind of parties. And the president laughed. He <laughs> thought it was great. He said, you guys, he said, you party as long as you want. He said, I got to go to bed. I got to work tomorrow. And uh, so we took the hint. But uh, and, and part of the fix, you know, about 15, 20 minutes later. But the... Uh, and we were staying over at the Capitol Hilton just a couple blocks away so we could walk there. And it was kind of a magic walk back. I, my wife was with me, and uh, and we, you know, profited from all of that. And, um, and it felt, you know, like when we're walking around the White House, you know, opening up doors and stuff. And, oh, Fruit of the Loom, look at that, you know. And, uh, and you find out interesting stuff. Like you find out that the bathroom in the Lincoln bedroom has a lock on it. And uh, that may seem like an inconsequential detail, but I can comment that nine months after the party at the White House, about 45 or 50 kids were born. Uh, uh, One of them, by the way, was my daughter. And beyond that, there won't be additional detail other than to say it was one hell of a party. And so, yeah, I got to talk to <laughs> President Nixon and, you know, and, and later was a, uh, as a White House fellow, worked in the Ford administration, actually came in on the transition when uh, Nixon resigned. Uh, but uh, you never, you know, crossing the White House threshold, you feel such a, well, every morning it's awe-inspiring and you feel such a great responsibility to do the right thing for the country, and uh, wow, that was uh, Boy, so. That was part of so it. many questions. There's, All right, uh, well, I, I'm, I'm, go- I'm, I'm going on in a, in a in a normal old man garrulous fashion here. So you, I'll try to no. keep it to short answers, <laughs> and you keep it to tough no, questions. No, it was just, right. uh, I, a lot of questions about that night that I will not ask you on here. But uh, we're going to pause right now for a word from our sponsors, and when we come back, we're going to continue here. Here to hear General Borling's story. We'll be right back. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. My father was the, the best truck driver ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the state with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. 
at GTS Transportation. We make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. CBN. Veterans Broadcast Network brings you Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scroggin. It lies within you to conquer your greatest challenges. Patrick tackles the stories of how others faced unthinkable odds and then at a pivotal moment, a change occurred within them that gave them the strength, attitude, and direction to excel beyond the greatest expectations. Listen every week and learn how it is possible to defeat the impossible. Welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken. I'm not going to talk much here. I'm going to continue on with this because we could probably fit this into four or five shows. And so I want to try and uh, get as much out of this one as possible tonight. Uh, so General Borling... Uh, just a quick question. So you, when you flew fighter jets, I'm assuming F-4s, probably in Vietnam? I uh, flew F-4s in Vietnam, flew uh, uh, F-4s after the war, too. In fact, that was a question my wife had for me when I uh, called her from Clark. You know, I hadn't seen her for seven years and had very limited well, – didn't, she didn't know I was alive for many years, uh, but toward the end, about – Five and a half, six years out, they started to exchange six-line letters, which they they authorized under the uh, kind of variable rules they had with respect to us, what they called war criminals. Uh, and she said, you know, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to go back to fighters. And I remember she said, you sure you want to do that? Well, this is on the phone after a, you know, I haven't talked to her uh, for years. And, in fact, she uh she go, whoa, how are you? You know, I'm so glad to have you back. You know, da, 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 da. like I'd gone out for a pack of cigarettes. You know, so anyway, the uh, uh, the second question was, what are we going to do? And I said, well, we're going back to fighters, and if I'm any good, uh, we'll hang around the force, and if I'm not, you know, we're going to go somewhere else. Uh, but speaking about going somewhere else, I failed to finish the story about uh, me and Rex Scouten standing overlooking a function in the East Room. Uh, years after the Nixon thing, and uh, and and Rex said to me, he said, "You know that party?" And I said, "Yeah, I remember that party." And uh, he said, "It's a great party." He said, "It was." He said, "It was the best party ever thrown at the White House. Not only the biggest, but the best." And I said, "Well, why was it the best?" And he said, "Nobody stole anything." <laughs> 
Think about that. You know, having been now to a number of White House functions, you know, someone's always trying to make off with the Dolly Madison China under their, you know, under their tux or, you know, the pieces. So what they do is they leave out Chodsky stuff expected to be taken. But uh, the big thing was there we had the run of the place and nothing was missing uh, of, you know, you know, matchbooks and things like that that they had laid out. That's fine. But uh, nothing, you know, of of uh, enduring value, shall we say? So, all right. So that. Yeah. So now we're back. Now, now we're back. We're t- we're talking about airplanes, and uh, so I did go back to F4s, and uh, it meant a lot to be uh, get back highly qualified again in a short period of time, like about three months after getting back operational. So uh, it meant yeah. that I could hang around the force, and uh, you know, didn't have to uh, didn't have to back up to the pay line. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I know that's a, you know, that, that was one of the biggest things for me was just getting back in the air and just proving to myself and everybody else I could do it. Um, you know, missing a leg and all the injuries that I had, but let's just jump in. So were you in uh can you just start when you were the day that, that, uh, that fateful day in Vietnam that changed you, the, the trajectory of your life? Can you just talk about that? Uh, what were you flying? Oh, and how, yeah. What, what situation uh, you know, in? there's nothing, nothing. Uh, uh, it's amazing how people like whole, War stories. I was joking with one of your colleagues, Kenny DeCamp, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, and saying, "You know, you got to watch out when you ask the old guys, you know, to recount stories from back then, because they turn into bullfrogs. <laughs> the bullfrogs are those guys sitting at the bar with a, you know, bourbon and water, or scotch and water, or something, and uh, and they start recounting tales of yesteryear." Uh, and the exploits attendant thereto. Yeah, and some of those exploits even verge on the truth. You know, so it's a uh, it's something that you have to take with a grain of salt. So uh, in my case, the, I got all beat up getting out of the jet, low and fast. It's over North Vietnam. I only flew north. I never flew. I flew in country, but never operational missions. It was my 97th official mission. Unofficially, it was about 115. I was waiting for paperwork to come through because I'd volunteered for another 100 missions over the north. Uh, with my wife's assent, by the way. Uh, and uh, she was uh, uh, and, and continues to be a great supporter of career and activities. But uh, got taken out by ground fire and got out low and fast and in the course of that, you eject and, and you, you come out kind of horizontal uh, in the slipstream, and then you get a swing with the chute deploying. And uh, in my case, I got the came out horizontal and I hit the ground. That's how close it was, and uh, went rolling down this manicured hill—not so manicured, but a uh, cultivated hill—for about a quarter mile, like a some kind of Mexican jumping bean out of control. And uh, rolled up at the bottom, all busted up. Had a broken back, and everything was sprained. Couldn't walk, and that's when I went into the drill of uh, after crawling into a log and passing out on that huge log. And they're all around me. We're right off Highway One, which runs from Hanoi north to China, and uh, managed to crawl out with the staff into the road and stopped a truck. And you've already relayed how it was a, uh, a supply truck. I didn't know that. Uh, but I found out quickly when the 
troops kind of bailing out the back, and all of a sudden I've got guns coming out every which way. Uh, I've got my six gun, and uh, they can see I'm hurt. And uh, I elected not to, I used the phrase, die in a ditch that night, and that started the six and a half plus years of uh, internment, with the first years being pretty brutal. Uh, it got marginally better, but never got up to Geneva Convention standards. So uh, we who communicated through the walls and were in isolation or semi-isolation for many years uh, uh, just tried to keep the faith, knew it was important to survive, but uh, wanted to survive with honor. Uh, we wanted folks back home to be proud of us. And much like you're wounded but not broken. We had a circumstance where they would hurt us badly, and uh, so we'd have to bend. So we would say, bend and do your best, but don't break. Don't break. And uh, that's, uh, uh, that's a tough instruction in and of itself. Much like wounded, but don't be broken is a tough instruction that comes internally, and then you you uh, live it and you demonstrate it externally, uh, always keeping that little measure of strength inside that you need uh, to soldier on through. Uh, the months and years, as you know, go by quickly, but sometimes the days come hard. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't imagine, uh, you know, you, you, you talk about the Geneva Convention. I think we're probably the only country that would abide by the Geneva Convention under them circumstances. Uh, but I couldn't imagine being pulled out and tortured every day like you all were. Um, that would be, uh, it'd be brutal. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's amazing what the human mind and the human bodies are capable of if you believe and, and you stay positive and you always have something to look forward to. Well, I'm, uh, I'm fond of reminding folks. I write a little column called The Third Degree been writing it for two and a half years. It appears in some of the Gannett papers on Sundays. Yeah, it doesn't anymore. I'm actually going to a subscription model uh, here starting at the first of the year. Uh, so for a cup of coffee a month, you can get my Sunday column called The Third Degree, which is uh, the contention is that I have confidence in the American people that they can make their own darn decisions, that they can uh, assess the facts as they see them and do what's right for their family, their community, their country. Uh, but I reserve the right to ask hard questions on a specific subject, both personal questions and public uh, policy kinds of questions, believing that, as Socrates reminds, that the unexamined life is not worth living. So uh, I'll continue with this third-degree column. And the site is supposed to go live tomorrow, but I really think it's going to be into the weekend, into the Christmas weekend. But if people have any interest, they can go to www.third-degreeus.com, and they can sign up there if they have interest. Well, I think I think that's something. Yeah, I, I definitely will be. I'll sign up. I mean, that's uh, you know, that's well, our country of, needs for more. Coffee, for, for, for a cup of coffee a month, you know, come on, give me a break. That's you know. So that's a quarter yeah, of a cup of coffee sure. a week, you know. So, so I think uh, sure. I think that, that that's uh, and it, it, uh, I put a good deal into it. I'm working on a book deal. I haven't. Uh, my first choice was 
because I've got great affection for and regard for the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. In fact, my first book was the first imprint of the Pritzker Military Museum and Library down in 104 South Michigan. But because this book tends to be uh, kind of outside the boundaries of traditional military history or experience, and it frolics with not only philosophy, but political science and political realities of the day, that uh, that they're not going to take a flyer at this one. So I'm out looking for a publisher and and uh, uh, going to make the columns of two and a half years. Gannett has given me the rights to them, so that's nice. Uh, and then I'll be writing new stuff every week uh, on Sundays. Uh, this is part of the uh, the giving back kind of thing that you just keep trying to contribute in your own way. I'd, if someone was to ask you, Patrick, you know, when is your life's mission complete? What would you tell them? When I take my last breath. That's exactly right. God, you're a smart guy. Uh, the uh, when you when you quit breathing, you know, that's when it's uh, that's when the mission's over. Uh, it continues, yeah. and for those of us who have been in the military. I wish more people had been in the military. I really do. I think it's a, an annealing force uh, in the in the nation. In fact, Sir John Hackett, great military historian that he was, uh, suggested that the military uh, in free countries represents a, a moral repository for the nation. A moral repository, yeah. kind of a well that the country drinks of. And I think that uh, even though we stub our toes from time to time in the military, uh, uh, it is that. It certainly has been that in my life, and I I know in your life. So uh, we just continue to march. That's the deal. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And we're going to take another break here from word from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to continue on with this uh, touching, inspiring story. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Attention, looking for semi drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. CBN. 
Veterans Broadcast Network brings you Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scroggin. It lies within you to conquer your greatest challenges. Patrick tackles the stories of how others faced unthinkable odds and then at a pivotal moment, a change occurred within them that gave them the strength, attitude, and direction to excel beyond the greatest expectations. Listen every week and learn how it is possible to defeat the impossible. Welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. All right, back here with General Borling. General Borling, I'd like to just go back, if we could, just to when you were in Hanoi. Did uh, this, get, Can you just describe a couple of situations that were – because people, I don't think people understand – what you guys went through. I do because I've done a lot of reading, a lot of studying, a lot of research, talked to a lot of POWs. I went through SEER school, got to meet a lot of POWs. And so uh, if you could, you know, if, if you wouldn't mind, if you could just kind of give them, uh, you know, a rundown of a of a, of a a day for you in the Hanoi Hilton. Well, I'm not sure I want to do that. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I'm pretty good at repression, you know, and... Uh, uh, in the end, to try to come up with a typical day that stretches over six and a half plus years, uh, that's, uh, I'm not sure there's a common denominator other than, other than you had to make time an ally. Uh, if, you, if you're out, and I've been fortunate, to, notwithstanding the broken back and stuff, I've been fortunate to... Uh, be able to surmount that. In fact, I came back from the war and I told my wife, I said, I'd, lo- I'd lost an inch and a half. And of course, her question was where, but that's another subject for another time. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the reality is that I then ran marathons and, and I ran my last one at 10, 10, 10 when I was 70 uh, in Chicago. And, and imagine running a long-distance race, and you cross the finish line, and and then the guy says, "No, this isn't the finish line. Keep going." And you know you're pretty well spent, but you pick him up and lay him down, and you keep going, and you come to another place that you think is the finish line, and the the answer is not only keep going, but you are beat uh, on down the road, if you will. And so the real chore was to run an uncertain race, one that as the years passed, you weren't sure had an end. I already said that the, the months and the years, strangely, tended to pass by quickly, but it was the endless days that came hard and filling those days, uh, especially when you were alone, was the real chore because there were no books. I mean, there was no TV. There was no, you know, God, you'd like to be in a supermax prison in the United States, you know, where at least you had something to occupy the mind. You know, you had TV and you had things to read and you had things to write with and you had things to 
keep your mind active and you could do, you know, physical exercise and that kind of thing. And at least you had food that was uh, edible. It's, I, I tell you what, the food's always edible. You just got to force yourself to eat it. Uh, and I'm talking more now about the early years. Uh, somewhere around Ho Chi Minh's death in late 69 and certainly after a raid called the Sante Raid, where a bunch of commandos hit a prison camp, which was on the outside of Hanoi by a few miles, tried to spring it. Well, it was an intelligence failure. The camp was empty. Uh, but it did force in November of 70 the uh, Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, to collapse us all into the Hualo prison, the thing you know as the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, I was in a satellite camp maybe three or four miles away, uh, and we all were thrust back into this camp and put into rooms of 40 and 50 guys, uh, even though the rooms were sized for maybe 20 or 25. But we were all together for the first time. You have no idea what that meant. We'd been communicating through the walls, or when you had a roommate, you had someone to talk to, uh, but then you were with that person, you know, 365, uh, 24-7, and, and yeah, that had its challenges uh, after a period of time uh, because you're living in a very, very confined space where you measured your exercise ability to be able to walk, maybe take two or three steps in one direction, half step in another direction, and then two or three steps back, and that's it. I mean, that's it. So well, uh, you're really, and you got a concrete bunk or a, or a wooden pallet that you sleep on the floor on a straw mat, and you, it's cold in the winter and beastly hot in the summer, and you uh, you're very much a, a subject to the extremes of weather. And, and it, you know, it, if you just want to, it you know got very close to freezing in Hanoi, <clears throat> and we've got a thin blanket and a and a pair of pajamas, and that's it. And uh, and then in the summer when the temperature and the humidity is through the roof, you're you know, you're literally feel like you're dying. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, the timing. Varies. So the early years, just think brutality. And after, you know, 70, it never got easy, but it got better. And thank God it did, or we wouldn't have made it. Uh, and that for all guys. I mean, other people were, had harsh times, and torture was uh, always a threat. Uh, they, they didn't want to kill you, necessarily, although they made mistakes and did. Uh, but they wanted to hurt you. They wanted to hurt you bad and force you to do their bidding. And that was the constant resistance thing that we we lived with. Uh, wow. But, uh, but, you know, having said all that, God, I think I paint too. I tried to paint an authentic picture. But in the end, we had stuff that uh, fought against that, that fought against that uncertain race. I wrote a book in my mind, for example. Uh, I literally composed it and kept it memorized for a whole bunch of years. And when I got out at, at Clark Field, put it into a tape recorder, 
and then buried it for 40 years until John McCain and some other guys uh, came and said, hey, you got to publish that book of poetry that you tapped through the walls, the tap code. You know the tap code, certainly, right? You went to series school and all of that business, but many people don't, Patrick, know the tap code, and I advise them that they can learn it anyway in my book, Taps on the Walls, uh, because that way the next time they get thrown in jail, they'll be able to talk to somebody, you know. And the next stuff, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, so, well, uh, know, but but we tend to remember the funny stuff, and uh, to continue that theme of you know there were optimists and pessimists obviously up there, and the pessimists thought we were going to die up there, and they thought they wouldn't even send our bodies home. Pretty bleak thought. The optimists, on the other hand. We're absolutely convinced that they would send our bodies home. So that was, uh, I think, I think that was encouraging of the human spirit uh, that uh, you have humor, even gallows humor, and it, uh, and it's uh, the, the ability to laugh uh, was important. And, and let me put a finishing point on this. There's no way to. There's lots of books that have been written, and I recommend people read them. Everyone's got a. It's it's all individual especially if you contrast the wars like World War II and Korea and Vietnam and some of the other uh, fracases that we've gotten into. And the Pritzker, again, to go back to that military museum and library, is after they finish with the Bill Baldwin display that's currently there, and you can see it online as well as in place, and everyone ought to belong to the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, uh, they're going to run a POW exhibit. And they're going to cover the wars, World War II and Korea and Vietnam. As a matter of fact, the Maine Military Museum in Portland, Maine, Maine Military Museum in Portland, Maine, a little-known structure, but uh, the brainchild of a guy named Lee Humiston, uh, deserves your support, financial support. And you certainly want to, if you get up to Portland, Maine, you want to visit this place. It is an incredible museum. Uh while it has artifacts from the revolutionary period forward, it's heavy Vietnam, and it's uh, got the stories to tell. In fact, Lee has provided 70 hours of video and television, much of it aired in Southeast Asia, uh, never seen before. That's going to be part of the display at the Pritzker, and you can see it at the Maine Military Museum, uh, and that's in Portland, Maine. Wow! So look up. That'd be worth just going to see. Maine military, yeah, Maine military museum, Portland, Maine. Send them some bucks. Uh, uh, Lee does this out of pocket, and what he generates through the thousands of people that that visit his place. But it's hand to mouth kind of operation, and and we call him, uh, we former POWs call him the keeper of the flame, the keeper of the flame, and so commend. Lee Humiston, H-U-M-I-S-T-O-N, and the Maine Military Museum in Portland, Maine, to all your listenership out there and would hope uh, you might think that's worthy of your support. Absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't see how you couldn't support something like that. I mean, uh, I, I want to get on an airplane now and go to Maine and, and see it, and I will. Well, um, let me know if you're going, and we'll let Lee know you're coming. And he gives, he'll give you a personal tour. He will do that. Sure. 
Awesome. Yeah. So when you were uh, when you were in 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 Hanoi, you were uh, you were with uh, Senator John McCain, correct? Yeah, well, I told you when they put everybody together in November of '70 at the uh, Hualo or at the, in the actually the old French colonial prison. If you look at that in your history and you read a little French or you know French, uh, it's called the Maison Centrale, uh, the Central House, uh, which is uh, a euphemism for a French colonial prison and all of that business, guillotine and all, uh, and punishment cells and torture cells. Uh, it's a little-known fact that Bonwin Jaff, who was the defense minister for Dien Bin Phu in '54, and a confidant of Ho Chi Minh's and Pham Ban Dong, the prime minister. His, I think it was his wife and daughter were arrested by the French and put into this prison, and they never came out. And uh, so it's a place that has its own special brand of horrors. And we're aware that the number of people who we know went to Hualo uh, never made it into the general prison experience. Uh, because we think that they were basically tortured to death, and uh, again, it was it was it was not it was not. I don't think the intent to do that. It, the intent was to take you to a point where you were hurt badly, but but not to the point of of death. So, uh, wow. but we know that line, we know that line was crossed. Wow. And so um, real quick, we're going to go ahead and take one last break from word from our sponsor. When we come back, we'll jump right. I want to talk about your book a little bit and then, uh, you know, what your plans are for the future. So we'll be right back. Sure. Sure. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the state with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. VBN, 
Veterans Broadcast Network brings you Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scroggin. It lies within you to conquer your greatest challenges. Patrick tackles the stories of how others faced unthinkable odds and then at a pivotal moment, a change occurred within them that gave them the strength, attitude, and direction to excel beyond the greatest expectations. Listen every week and learn how it is possible to defeat the impossible. Welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. All right, welcome back. Uh, General Borling, I'd like to ask you, I know you got to go a little bit before 7. I know you have another engagement. So yeah, I do. I've got, a, you know, I've got a Zoom call at 7 with, you know, Gary Rabine uh, here in Illinois is running for the governorship and I've been impressed with this guy. God, he, he started on the back end of a rake making asphalt driveways as a teenager and built it into an international paving business, highly successful. Back to Charlie Kirk and Turning Point. Uh, when Charlie Kirk was 19 years old, 10 years ago, Gary Rabine was one of the first guys to step into his corner. And it's time for people to step into Rabine's corner because he's got uh, he, he's got the right orientation. He knows how to build jobs. He can't be bought. Uh, he wants to cut property taxes and, and and make life right for the people of Illinois. And we're under enormous pressures here, you know, both social and uh, economic pressures that make it a tough state to live in. And Gary uh, says, hey, ride with me. I'll pave the way. How's that one? He's a, in the paving business. <laughs> He's going to pave the way. And I got a seven o'clock uh, with him and some of his inner staff because uh, I think he's the right guy for the time. Well, that's that's awesome. And the, yeah, we definitely need that. We Not only in Illinois, but we need that all over the country right now. But that's for another topic. And before we jump into this, I would really it's, like it's to a, ask, it's a big, I would like you know, to it's a, it's a big. Yeah, go ahead. I want to say it's a big topic, and I want to finish up this thought on adversity uh, uh, because it's, it's instructive to the times in which we live in. So I think most men and women can, you know, we deal with a lot of suffering in our lives. So we punishment and reward comes to us all, uh, and it's and, and I think we we you know we so I use the phrase soldier on through, but if you really want to test a person's character, if you really want to assess what kind of man or woman they are, give them power, give them power, and then watch. Uh, and hope you've made the right decision based upon your assessment of the motivation. But that's another subject for another time, perhaps. I think so. I was just going to ask you if, if we could get you on another show maybe in a couple weeks just to continue this on, because I don't feel like we've done uh, your uh, career, your story uh, enough justice, but we can talk about that later on. But So we could talk about your book, Taps on the Walls. Uh, just kind of quickly explain that, and, and I know it's poems from the Hanoi Hilton that you all wrote, and I'm sure it was all in code, and you said you had written it in your head and memorized it. And I was asking, I was wondering if you could uh, read one of the poems, maybe. Well, when you say you all wrote, I'm going to correct you. I'm going to say I all wrote, uh, although a lot of okay. guys would <laughs> be surprised. There are a bunch of, bunch of fighter pilots, and a lot of people uh, composed uh, original works of poetry or prose or did something to keep their minds active. In my case, uh, I, while I was trained as an engineer, I had a, a great love of the humanities. And uh, 
knew enough about the poetic forms and stuff to to uh, take a stab at it. So and I, I did it as an exercise to stay sane, really. And I wanted my wife and little girl to have legacy, as I mentioned, in case I in case I didn't make it. Uh, well, I did make it, and that's why I say I buried the book for 40 years. And then with my wife's okay and the urging of people like John McCain, who did the foreword, uh, very gracious of him. Uh, but the book is basically as it was composed uh, with some minor edit here and there, uh, but, you know, 98% pure. Uh, uh, and it's in four parts. There's a flying part, then there's a POW and human nature part, then there's a holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, etc., uh, birthdays, and then there's a long epic poem at the end called uh, Sea Story, Southeast Asia Story, and it tries to capture all of the activities of the human condition, all of the vagaries of the human mind, and array them in a using aviation as a metaphor. There's a glossary in the back because a lot of it is aviation heavy uh, in terms of terminology, but uh, a lot of it it, it just reads for the common man. I've got this theory that in art, you ought, to, you ought to like it or dislike it immediately. I mean, when you walk up to a painting, you say, gee, I kind of like that or don't like that. Um, same thing with music. If you hear something, uh, you know instinctively or intuitively that, hey, you like that sound or you like that beat or you like whatever it is. Uh, uh, you go to the ballet and you see it and it's a great ballet and you're just uh, captured by it. But if it's a bad ballet, God, you say, why don't they just hire taller girls? You know, it's like going to the bullfights. If the bullfight is great and wonderful and artistic and courageous, boy, it's something like you never hope to see. And but if it's anything other than that, it's just like you know slaughtering meat. So you know, this is the, <laughs> the difference uh, in art and things. So in my book, uh, I tried to use traditional forms and but I tried to make it so that when you read it and uh, you either liked it or you you didn't like it that's you know that's the way it was but you didn't have to go questioning around a lot of poetry you read it and then you try to figure out well the words are pretty and some of the imagery is nice but what the hell does it mean you know what does it mean so I, yeah. I kind of got a face value face value thing, and then there's a level below that. And even if you're serious or than some of the stuff, there's a third level. But that's for you to explore. But you want a poem. Is that right? Yes, sir. Please. All right. I'll give you a poem that was never supposed to be published because it's an excerpt from a Christmas letter that was never written because I didn't have the ability to write letters. And it's a letter to my wife. And I, I gave it to her after the war. And I, I said, this is a poem I wrote to you, uh, which I never had a chance to send. So, excerpt from a Christmas letter. And how I sought that special thought with meaning just, just for you. The memories shared, how dreams have fared, the things that we will do, but how to tell, what feelings well, what message to impart. 
perhaps your wife, just you're my life. So beats my constant heart. That's it. Eight, eight lines, two quatrains. Uh, and it still makes me cry. Well, I bet. I mean, I, you know, couldn't imagine what you were going through and, you know, that's what you did to keep yourself sane. I mean, that's uh and, and there's a lot of meaning in that. I mean, even, even not knowing you that well or your wife, I mean, you can just, you can just feel it in your voice when you read that. That's, that's, a, it's amazing. Well, there's a lot of stuff too that, you know, in the interest of time, I just gave you a, a short one, but I was accused by a New York times critic of creating rap and for which I deeply apologize. Um, but there was a thing called this one's for the birds. Um, and it starts out, it's about a couple of woodpeckers uh, who are going off on a cross-country flight. And it starts out something like this. Well, way down south in the Texas flat where Prickle, Pear, and Jackrabbit at live two woodpeckers in a start-off stump a-looking all the day for something to thump. All right, it goes on and tells a story that uh, is meant to be humorous and, in fact, has elements to it that I uh, am pleased to say. Uh, garner a laugh or two. Uh, but the New York Times person said, you know, you've created wrath. And so, no, that's that's a burden I've got to carry through life, I guess. <laughs> I, guess I guess so. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, for what you were going you know, there's through. About, there's, about 30, <laughs> there's about 30 verses of that which go on, you know. You know, to, you know they, the two ramble down radio base ops. Heidi to a few planning their hops. They checked with weather, then into the charts, filed an eyeball route, and departed them parts. You know, so it's an <laughs> aviation theme, and it uh, goes yeah. on about going west, going out there. The guy says, you know, uh, one guy says the other now. Now, I heard tell of a promised land where trees grow tall in the Peckins Grand. California redwoods supposed to be best. I'd be of a mind to mosey on out west. So it talks about you know, the problems with problems with the local flying wood in Texas being dry as a bone, cottonwood, willow, or other thorny things just don't fill the bill that empty hollow ring. So anyway, I played around with that, and then I do serious sonnets. Uh, if you're an Elizabethan or a Petrarchan sonnet lover, and none of you know what the hell I'm talking about, I'm not too sure I know what I'm talking about. But uh, I tended to favor the Elizabethan sonnet form. Wow. And, uh, and, adapt, and adapt it. So, uh, uh, well, I need to get the book. The idea, the idea to was to, to do something. You know, the essence of the human condition is to create, and that keeps you alive. That makes us what we are—the ability to create. And what I've got to create now is space between you and me. After having talked entirely too much on your show, Patrick, your uh, your. Uh, uh, a very genteel host, uh, allowing an old guy to come on and talk too much, but uh, you inspire well, I the devil. Way. I think I think that I, I could sit and listen to you for hours. Honestly, I, I love this kind of stuff, and I just I do have one last question for you. What's the fastest that you sure. flew at SR seventy one? North of Mach three point three. And for the so, people that don't know, that, what is a Mach? Mach is a speed of sound, so I was three times 
over three times the speed of sound. So it's at over 2,000 miles an hour. You know, it's they, they, they put it this way. When the guys took off from London and would land in the States, in, you know, New England someplace, uh, they would they would land uh, two hours before they took off. <laughs> uh, that's that's uh, if that's you nice. figure that one out, yeah. No, no, it's a great. You know, it's you're up there in the purple sky, and it's so uh, it's wonderful. Again, I was never operational in the airplane. I had great I had domain uh, as a DOSAC over that stuff, but was flying it uh, to try to keep it, and so I could testify with authority in front of the Congress. Uh, because the Air Force had made a decision to retire it, and I was fighting it. And I managed to save three of them, the NASA, but that, the rest of them ended up on, oh, they're all now on pedestals. It's too bad it was a gotcha. great airplane. One hopes that we got yeah, something in the black world out there that's equal to it. I got to go there, because uh, yes, they're sir. affecting me <laughs> at this Zoom call. So happy Christmas to all, and uh, and, uh, and hopefully a new year of promise. And, and uh, wish you, Patrick, and your fiance the very best. And to the listener crowd out there, uh, thanks for being tolerant of a old soldier here. Hey, General Borning, we thank you for your time. I really appreciate it coming on, and uh, means a lot to me. Good night. Good night. You're listening to Wounded but Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggins. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the state with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-754. Four six six seven. That number again, eight four seven seven five four four six six seven. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio broadcast for over fifteen years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since nineteen eighty five, serving Fortune one hundred companies for over thirty five years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network, brings you Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scroggin. It lies within you to conquer your greatest challenges. Patrick tackles the stories of how others faced unthinkable odds and then at a pivotal moment, a change occurred within them that gave them the strength, attitude, and direction to excel beyond the greatest expectations. Listen every week and learn how it is possible to defeat the impossible.